Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt, and welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I've got a very exciting episode lined up for you today. This is part one of a crossover between In Defense of Plants and a little podcast that you might have heard of or are probably already listening to called This Podcast Will Kill You. That's right, the Aarons are here joining me today to talk about a subject that I've been meaning to cover for a very long time. But before we get to that, I just want to say I was really excited to bring both of these ladies on. They are incredibly intelligent and they are really good friends of mine. It was so exciting to see friends succeeding in the world of podcasting, especially right out of the gates like they did. And uh, crossover just seemed inevitable, or it made a lot of sense, considering uh, there's a lot of overlap between the realm of plants and the world of disease. Both the Aarons are, of course, grad students here at the University of Illinois. Yeah, it's fun to finally have them on the podcast. So today we are covering herbalism. Now, not herbalism in the broad sense and not even in the historical folklore sort of sense. What we were trying to do was search for the efficacy of these herbs and figure out the medical legitimacy or illegitimacy of them. But uh, as you will hear, that's easier said than done. I don't want to steal any of their thunder, but this is a big topic and we learned a lot in the process. So what started out as one idea kind of had to, out of necessity, morph into another. But the exciting part is, is it leaves open a lot of room for more episodes like this. Now, we'll be covering only two herbs today, Echinacea and St. John's Wort, so sit back and enjoy the ride, and again, remember, none of us are experts on this, and we're not trying to claim to be, we're not trying to change anyone's mind here, but it's uh, it was a fun journey, and at least what you'll hear is how difficult it can be, even for people who are well-versed in the world of medical literature to find information, real legitimate information on these plants, so you'll hear us call for this during the episode, but... Essentially, if you have scientific information on this, or you know journals, legitimate journals that we should be looking in for more information on this, please send them our way. It was extremely difficult to get anything approaching a scientific consensus on any of these plants, and so many of the more that we wanted to talk about. So again, if you have that information, or you know where to get it, please let us know. Before we get to that, however, I've got a few orders of business to take care of. If you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support it, please head on over to patreon.com slash plants and see what we got going on over there. You can get yourself kickbacks like stickers, access to the VIP section of the indefensiveplants.com website, and for those of you looking to get a little bit more, you can even get a producer credit on this show. For instance, today's episode is produced in part by Clifton, Carl, Tim, Lisa, Susanna, Homestead Brooklyn, Plant by Design, Daniela, Brody, Kevin, Sophia, Mark, Katharina, Sammy and Sven, Renz, Bendix, Erene, Holly, Mountain Misery Farms, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, Sienna and Garth, and Margie. So thank you to everyone who's given this far. It really is helping out. Podcasting gets kind of expensive from month to month, and you guys are keeping In Defense of Plants up and running. And as you're going to find out in the next couple of months, I keep promising that, no spoilers, you're helping In Defense of Plants bring you better content. If money isn't your thing, which I completely understand, at the very least, consider subscribing to and reviewing this podcast on whatever pod portal you use to download it. Reviews help In Defense of Plants reach a wider audience. That's how pod portals make recommendations to new listeners. So if you want to help cure plant blindness one episode at a time, please consider reviewing this podcast on whatever pod portal you use to download it. All right, again... Before we start this episode, none of us are experts on this subject, so uh, if you have any cool information, any real actual scientific information on the efficacy of any of these plants, 
let us know. Otherwise, I hope you uh, sit back and enjoy this for the scientific journey that it was. So without further ado, let's head on over my conversation with the errands from this podcast will kill you. I hope you enjoy. I think it's nice to have both of you on this podcast finally. Uh, first off, congrats thank on you. the recent thank success. You. Thank, thank you, thank you. Uh, who am I talking to right now? <laughs> the Aarons? The Aarons. Oh, so no, bad. it's the Aarons. <laughs> I knew this day would come. <laughs> like it comes most uh, multiple times a week. We end up in the same room hanging out, talking it's together. True. But it's nice to do it in this capacity. Yeah. Yeah. So, officially on the record right yeah. on the record literally literally <laughs> so who are the errands do you want to go in alphabetical order so it's not biased unless you count that biased that would be you would you, that be me in either case in okay yeah you you're really <laughs> i'm dead last bringing in the tail in there aaron z hi <laughs> hi i'm aaron on updike nice to meet you nice to meet you <laughs> And what do you do, Erin? I am also a graduate student here at Illinois. I'm doing my MD-PhD. What does that mean? It means I'm in school forever. <laughs> that's literally all it means. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You're not lying. Yeah. So I, I'll finish up my PhD this year, and then after that, I still have three more years of med school to finish. So it's a PhD plus med school. Yeah, all at the same time. Awesome. It's great fun. You have complexion to <laughs> yeah, you. You yeah. see the sun sometimes. I just right? like I'll leave it for just like ten minutes in the morning is when I have That's my good. breakdowns and then then I'm good for the day. Yeah, and you gotta get on the bus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, time time time's over. <laughs> I sprint to the bus because I'm always late. Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing for your PhD? I do research on the ecology and epidemiology of Chagas disease. Ooh, that doesn't sound fun. Yeah, it's a disease that's transmitted by these bugs called kissing bugs that are endemic to Central and South America. So it's this bug that's like, how big is that? An inch? Sure. Like, about like three, three and a half millimeters or centimeters is like the biggest that's one. Enough, yeah. So like inch and a half. It's not insignificant. Yeah, it's like, you don't want it biting your face and pooping on you, which is what it does. Yeah. <laughs> and then it oh. poops little <laughs> parasites into you. Uh, and then you get sick and 20 years later die of heart failure. You haven't gotten it, right? Not yet. Okay. If untreated. If untreated, untreated. yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's basically untreatable, so okay. there's not really treatment for it. Well, so. dang. Yeah. <laughs> Only 25% of cases, though, actually progress to that stage. Huh. But yeah, so they think that Darwin died of Chagas disease. Ooh, that's... It's our claim to fame. Wow. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> All right. Well, that's a podcast for another time. Uh-huh, yeah. What about oh, the yeah. other Aaron in the room, the the dead last Aaron? I get to be other Aaron today. That's fine. <laughs> no, that's you're, you're Kentucky Aaron in my... <laughs> I'm Kentucky officially Aaron. Thank my you. Head. Uh, so I am Aaron Welsh, and I work on tick-borne disease and climate change. So basically trying to estimate or predict how tick ecology will change as the climate gets drier and more variable in the tropics. So particularly, hmm. my work is all takes place in Panama. And so I study both the abiotic factors like temperature, rainfall, humidity, and how that impacts tick distribution and abundance throughout the year. And then also the biotic factors, so like what mammals are in different areas to see what 
tick species uh, are present in certain areas or not. Hmm. Now, are you also a disease ecologist, or do you just love ticks? Uh, can't the answer be both? No. <laughs> true. That's true. To be fair, it totally can be. Uh, I mean, I don't... That I, I will admit that as I've spent more time researching them, I do find ticks to be lovely um, to, in, their, in their own special way. Spoken like a true grad student. <laughs> yeah. But no, in at at heart, I'm just a disease ecologist, so I'm not I'm not tied to ticks necessarily. But they are a really interesting system because of the complexity of life cycle and the enormous diversity of pathogens that they carry. Sure, I know they've made my life miserable from time to time. Oh yeah, same here. <laughs> <laughs> and multiple other friends of yeah, mine as well. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, you both need to have a podcast where you just talk about those things on top of it. But speaking of podcasts, you're. <laughs> Both here because you are already on a podcast where you speak I was about like, those don't things. Don't we do that already? <laughs> Great I mean, just, suggestion. Just specifically the research stuff. But oh, you, God, you're here no. for a podcast where you take your love for disease ecology and, and you kick it up multiple notches mm -hmm. into something. What is that called and what's it all about? Ayo, it's called This Podcast Will Kill You. Yep. And basically, we get to flex our trivia sides. Uh -huh. That's basically. what you get to do. Yeah that's, yeah, that's my favorite part. I don't have a lot of trivia under my belt. <laughs> so, yeah, on this podcast, we talk about the biology, the history, and then the current status of different infectious diseases. Uh, each, each week, we take on a new infectious disease. And right now, we're in between seasons. Mm -hmm. But we should have a new season premiering relatively soon. So Very exciting. keep an eye out for that. Yes. Well, it's a fantastic podcast. I'm so excited for the success you have and are going to have with it, but you're on this podcast and uh, we're doing a crossover. Heck so yeah, yeah, you're coming here today for a specific topic. And for those listening, you have to understand what went into researching this topic. <laughs> it was a really interesting journey, and what started as one idea uh, quickly morphed into what you're going to hear tonight. And all of that came from the difficulty of this subject, and it's something that I've been wanting to cover on the podcast for a long time. It's something that, um, if you've known me or been around me, is a it's a it's a big point of uh, not contention, but frustration as a, as a botanically minded person. But uh, we're here to talk about herbalism and bring mm -hmm. some ecology and evolution and history mm -hmm. and disease ecology. <laughs> As, as if it's a different, yeah, together <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. to talk about this. But the original idea really was to sit down, pick a handful of plants mm -hmm. and think about uh, this idea of, okay, why do these plants contain these compounds that we think are useful? And what does the science actually say about their efficacy? Yeah. <laughs> what does the science what say? What does the science say? And that's, <laughs> that's what's interesting because these plants do create a lot of what we call secondary compounds and metabolites. They're, they're compounds that aren't involved in growth, reproduction, or day-to-day -day maintenance of cellular activities. So they serve another purpose. And a lot of time that purpose, as we're going to hear tonight, is defense. Um, but many organisms, not just humans, have co-opted a lot of that. Much of our medicine is based on these secondary metabolites. So herbalism, on a broad sense, makes a lot of sense. But from a botanical standpoint, you know, there's, there's a separation between science and myth and lore and, and culture, even. And then sound biology, but also conservation. A lot of herbs are under threat from over-harvesting, essentially. Right. Uh, ginseng, one of the more famous ones, golden seal. So at the foundation of it, there's a lot of people going out there and taking them from the wild because they think they have these values. And a lot of times that might not hold up. But uh, as we're going to learn, 
That's not a very uh, easy question to answer. So what happened when we first uh, set out to do this show? <laughs> we just, I don't know, had a breakdown. No. No, so <laughs> we spent... I hope I didn't cause it. We spent an entire day, afternoon, maybe? We probably should have spent more time is what we're trying to say. <laughs> oh, well, hold on. No, I mean, so we spent, we spent a little bit of time gathering information. Mm-hmm. Not enough, mm-hmm. clearly. But then at the end of that time, we, and it kind of, I guess, maybe merged into this breakdown we had where we were like, we don't know anything about this subject. It's so enormous. There's so much information out there. It's contradictory. Certain studies will show one finding. There's another study that shows another finding. And it's just, it's similar to the way that you see headlines that are like, coffee's good for you. Coffee's bad for you. Oh my gosh. Yes. Right. It's just like that. And so it's like, is there a consensus? That's not a question that's within our scope to answer it right. at all, right. or our expertise. We are not, let us say it again, we are not experts. No, we're not. We're not experts. <laughs> no, and we that's a really these. good caveat to make. Yeah. Is that none of us are experts in this. We're not coming at this from, well, here's our professional recommendation. This right. was three people setting out to try and learn about something that mm-hmm. a lot of people hold near and dear uh, and is very important in many cultures throughout the world and is very important, again, for conservation and ecology. But how easy is it for people that, you know, you two, your expertise is in this interaction between health and wellness in the human body and, and what can be done to stave off some of these issues. And mine is definitely botanical. How easy is it for these three types of people to find out information on this? And it turns out it's... Very difficult. Pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy, that's for sure. Yeah. Why? I guess that's a big and very loaded question, but to start with, I mean, is there a lot of information, valid information out there on this subject right now? If you wanted to hit scientific literature, can you find it? I mean, yes, you can find it. I tend to try and find things in journals that I'm familiar with so like I know like what that type of work usually looks like so I can evaluate it against other papers that I read in that journal sure so it was harder for me to find stuff in journals that I was familiar with but there's definitely stuff out there that is both peer-reviewed and not peer-reviewed but it's a lot of it in like places that I would never have known to look (laughs) for it right uh so in that way it was really difficult and then a lot of it is just super it's very difficult to evaluate and it's very difficult to sort of compare these studies against each other and to really understand. A lot of them I found came to conclusions that didn't actually seem supported by the data. And Mm. so if you are a person like, let's be honest, a lot of us are who just reads abstracts, (laughs) then you might come to a very different conclusion than if you actually read the papers, which is probably true. I mean, that's who hasn't overextended there. Oh, findings. I think oh, it's... Oh, yeah, you have to be yeah. like, and this will change the world. <laughs> the world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's every symposium. This is why this research is the most important right. research yeah. in the world and yeah. not what you're about to hear the rest of the day. Well, that was, that's why it's so hard. It was so hard to kind of get a consensus or get a feeling for, for instance, like any one of these plants to be like, is it good? Is it bad? Does right. it have any sort of effect? Because you not only have to find appropriate journals, you have to find papers that are published that mm-hmm. support one side or one one finding or another, and then you have to read and evaluate their methods, and yeah. then read and evaluate their data. Right. Did they do the analysis correctly? Did mm-hmm. they, like you said, reach the conclusions in a logical way? Right. It's, yeah, there's that's a lot of work to do. It was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think you quickly realize why you need <laughs> years of practice under your belt of, mm-hmm. of 
reading this, understanding it, knowing where to look for it, and then evaluation of methodologies. I mean, what do I know? I, I barely can do my own science some days, but I, I hear this thing come up time and time again, and I know we're never going to convince anyone that thinks science is a big conspiracy bought off by Big Pharma anyway, so that's not, again, what this show's all about, but you mentioned peer review mm-hmm. and the importance of peer review and and kind of how you can compare or not able to compare different studies. What does that mean from a scientific, at least from like testing medical efficacy on the human body? What does that mean from that perspective? Well, I don't know if this is exactly answering your question, but this is what I'm going to say. <laughs> Let's see if it answers. One of the things that I found very interesting about a lot of the studies that were looking at these different herbal remedies was that they often... Even when they were doing a placebo-controlled study or like a controlled randomized clinical trial type study where they take a group of people and they randomly allocate, you're going to get this treatment, you're going to get this treatment. Almost across the board, they're always comparing these herbal treatments to a placebo, Mm -hmm. which is great. That's like the very first step that you need to do to to show that this is better than not doing anything essentially, right? Taking a pill that's just sugar. Yeah. That's what a placebo is. Um, But the problem is that there's not a lot of studies comparing these herbal remedies to drugs that are already available on the market. Okay. And so in some cases, like let's say the common cold or something, we don't really have a lot to treat that. So that might be a valid study. But in other cases, like if you're looking at something to treat depression or something else, we do have drugs that are available. They might be flawed. They all are, right? (laughs) Especially in the case of something like depression. But they still do exist. And so it's really important that anytime you're talking about another treatment to compare it to treatments that are currently in effect rather than just the absence of treatment, essentially. Yeah. And so that was something that I think if you don't read a lot of like clinical studies, you're not going to, you're just going to think, oh, well, this is better than placebo. So that must mean it's good. But the question is, is it as good as what's already out there? And that's like, it's a, you can't really answer that question if you haven't compared them. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. There's, there's two very different questions being asked Mm -hmm. in that that context. Like, is is this effective at all? And the answer might be, yeah. In a lot of cases, in a lot of these things, it really was, which is super interesting to me. But then you have to sort of take it one step further. And I don't, I think there's a lot more that I could talk about. No, that's fair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and it's, again, it's not an easy topic to cover because there's just so many different avenues to getting to the point where you say, is this even worth taking, right. even if it does something? Right. Well, and that's another important thing to point out, is that a lot of what these some of these studies are testing are not what is commercially available in terms of herbal supplements. Yes. It, particularly because dosage is not regulated in the U.S., or, in other, or the dosage is regulated differently compared to other countries. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, if you wanted to take some sort of supplement, you don't know how much yes. of what is in there, what is the quality control, who is actually selling this. Mm. And so those in, in a clinical trial, those things are very carefully measured. measured and kept consistent across the board. And so even taking the, the findings of a clinical trial study and applying them to, oh, I should go to whatever store and pick up this supplement or this supplement, that, that may not translate at all. Yeah. Hmm. That was the, that was what I was going to say, but I was like, I don't know if this is getting too far. But yeah, it's like, because there's no, in the U.S., we don't regulate any herbal supplements and le- except mm. saying that they are safe to consume, essentially, just like, like a like, banana. It won't kill you outright yeah. doing this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's it. Other than that, so mm. how much is in every pill that you take or every tonic that you drink or whatever is not 
Regulated. Just, did a sting song. Every pill you take. Every <laughs> yeah, sorry. Right. And regulation is a huge concern here. And I know regulation is like the evil R word for a lot of people, yeah. but not in the case of things that c can potentially harm you. I mean, maybe or that's just a... in general. Yeah. Yeah. The, the idea that you brought up is just how much or the dose. What are you taking? How much are you taking? And how do you know that each pill or whatever form you're taking it in contains that? That's that's there's a biological underpinning to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, most of these compounds are in these plants as defense compounds. Mm -hmm. And plants are going to generally not going to produce things if they don't have to. Right. So even from one plant to another, they're finding in populations. So plants growing right next to each other and then plants growing on the other side of the mountain from one another. And then especially plants growing on different continents are going to have varying levels to these depending on their history, their, their placement, the nutrient levels, all of these different things. So how do you know what amount of this active chemical? And from a medical standpoint, the amount of anything, your body is, I mean, Again, we eat those plants. We have right. to deal with those compounds. Yeah. So our livers and kidneys are really good at filtering that stuff out. You have to get past some sort of threshold for the body to even go, right. oh, we have an excess of this. Let's pump it around our system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that kind of, I mean, that's exactly the kind of things that you would take into account if this were, if these were drugs that were regulated, like doctors decide this is the dosage that we're going to give of this specific drug because of these things. And yeah, so if you're if, if you don't know how much you're taking, then you have no idea if it's gonna work or not. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I think I said this on your podcast episode, but I'm gonna say it again on mine because it's such a good example. Like my old botany professor said, it's it's like getting good dope and getting bad dope. You never know, and that's a really apt example because yeah. that's a secondary metabolite that we're taking for uh, different purposes, right. but nonetheless, <laughs> you know, a lot of listeners can probably empathize with there's differences there. Why yeah. wouldn't there be differences in the amount? Another scary part about regulation is what you say is going into it right. might not actually be what's in there. Right. Yeah. Where's the verification or the validation process? And, I don't uh, know what it looks like. There's yeah. certainly instances where that could go very, very badly for right. people and has. Yeah. I think throughout Southeast Asia, they're having an issue with birthwort, a member of the birthwort family, which produces aristolochic acid, ending up in these supplements that uh, never intended to be in there or they're in high, much higher amounts than they claim, and it's actually causing cancers and malformations that are very characteristic of this process, yeah. which is uh, poisoning from this this particular plant chemical, and that's how they found it. They said the only way this happens is if someone's throwing that in there, Whoa. but unregulated, no, they didn't have to say anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then it just takes people dying or people getting sick to sure. find out that regulation is an important thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And as we're going to find out uh, in, in the episode that I recently recorded with you two, the difference between a medicine and a poison is a very thin line. Mm -hmm. It's all in the dosage. Right? So if you're taking these medications, because one of the things I hear is like, oh, it's from the earth, there's no side effects or something to that. It's natural. It's natural. natural. There won't so be side effects. for me. Is it true that any biologically active compound is going to have some side effects inherent with it to some extent? Or am I overstretching? Them? I think you're overstretching a little. Fair Sorry. <laughs> Not, I mean, most things have side effects one way or the other, I guess. I mean, side effects meaning just like you thought it was only going to do this one thing and it It does other does things. Other right. Things. I'm not necessarily yeah. speaking detrimental, but. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, I guess that's true. Like nothing does only it. one thing. Yeah. Um, but that's not to say that every supplement or anything that you take necessarily has any negative side effects. Sure. Yeah. That's fair. 
No, I've always thought that if it was bioactive, it was good. So that's good to know that you can kind of, it, it's it's not over. I mean, yeah, I guess it depends on your definition of side effects. Yeah. I always, I mean, in terms of drugs, <laughs> <laughs> usually when you're talking about drugs, a side effect is, I think of it as negative. And maybe I'm wrong. Generally, I, I think when people taken, say side effects, yeah. it's the, the connotation. I there. haven't taken pharmacology yet, so okay. I don't know for sure yeah. if that's Again, official. we're not experts. <laughs> but, we're learning together. But yeah, so I think um, in that case, like... There's plenty of things that you can take that aren't necessarily going to have any negative effects. They just might not have the positive effect that you thought they would or something like that. But doesn't just because it's bioactive, I don't think necessarily means there's going to be any negative effects of it. Sure. That makes sense. Okay. We did somewhat stick to a format here, uh, the original <laughs> format to some extent, where we did pick out a few plants. I, I think I threw up six originally, and we just hit the literature to see what we could find. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> it I think it was seven. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was a very long list, Matt. My apologies. It's like, is this is this a is this a new podcast? I got yeah. I get really excited when it comes to talking about. I'm like, ooh, we're here's... just used to only researching one thing at a time. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good point. I think a lot of these, just in the lore and 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 background alone we could cover each individual one oh, with yeah. each individual episode 100 totally. percent. Totally. Yeah. what we're not going to do is that <laughs> but in the process of researching this there was a handful of plants that really stuck out that really excited you both mm -hmm. and i figured those are fine by me yeah. so let's focus in now we're gonna have to vote okay there's one or the other it's a 50 50 right now and there's one that's super interesting and one that's also super interesting. <laughs> one has a yellow flower and one has a purplish pink Ooh, flower. Oh, I don't know which is which. I so like the purpley pink. Let's purpley go purple. Pink? All right, you chose echinacea. Okay. <laughs> you knew that, didn't you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> you sneak. the purple flower. How do I know? That's good. I you leave all the botany research to you. <laughs> Fair. That's good. That's, that's well, podcasting 101. <laughs> if you're going to want to actually shock and impress your friends... Actually save it. Yeah. And impress them live. You gotta save it. Because I can't act. <laughs> Alright, Echinacea. I guess I'll cover what the plants are, then we can go into their a little bit of their history and then we'll talk about what the research is saying cool. medically. I'll try. Alright, so Echinacea are the coneflowers. They're a Asteraceae, so they're a composite family. They're a North American group. What's a composite family? <laughs> oh crap. <laughs> I love it. Forcing me. A composite means that their inflorescence comes up and instead of having one single flower, it's actually multiple flowers combined into like a head. So uh -huh. that, that dense center you get in like a daisy flower or a uh -huh. coneflower flower, uh -huh. that's multiple florets. Is that cool. also how you get blackberries? Slightly oh. different. Okay, slightly different. Topic. So no, that's good though. Blackberries are actually a single. It's just multiple carpels within the ovary. <sighs> So that's why you get seeds in every one of yeah. those little pouches. The asters are multiple flowers on each okay. individual. It's still one seed per flower, but it it's one of those weak... It's a different developmental pathway. It may not seem important, but for classification it really is because it's the reproductive parts. Uh, and, and fun fact, the, the, the petals that you actually would see and pull off as a kid, those are sterile flowers that are just there to attract insects. Oh. Yeah. So generally, uh, there's a lot of species of echinacea, or at least relatively uh, more than what we're going to talk about tonight, but the three that I came across that most commonly end up in supplements for echinacea are echinacea purpurea, the purple mm -hmm. coneflower, echinacea polita, which is the pale purple coneflower, <laughs> 
And uh, Echinacea angustifolia, which is the narrow leaf cone flower. Which is the prettiest? Ooh, I think traditionally people would go with the purple cone flower. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of like the oddball looking ones, so I'm, I'm, I'm partial to the pale purple cone flower. Okay. It's taller, it's got, it's fuzzier, it's got these long slender petals on it. It's just different, right? <laughs> but they're awesome species. They are generally thought of as kind of like grassland plants. They live out in the open and compete well with grasses in some cases and not in others. Actually, all of these are... It's, it's not as common to come across them in the wild as it is in the nursery trade. For some reason, they're really good garden plants, hmm. but kind of rare-ish in the wild. I wouldn't hmm. say they're threatened, although a few species are feeling pressure from poaching and obviously tons of habitat lost in prairies. Right. But uh, they're, they're in no threat of going extinct, at least not these species specifically. But as a plant, uh, physiologically speaking, they are producing a lot of really interesting compounds. Um, but I think at this point, it would be worth talking about what historically people have, have attached to the cone flowers, and uh, then we'll go from there. I mean, an easier question might be, what haven't they? <laughs> Ooh! <laughs> Zing! <laughs> well, I mean, with echinacea and with a lot of, of the plants that I um, was reading about, it, people use it as a cure-all. Uh, I will say that, so what I found was echinacea was traditionally used by Native Americans for snake bites, was one of the, the leading things. What else? Colds, wounds, in one case, hydrophobia, so which is as a result of rabies, the fear of water. Wait. Spoilers! Spoiler alert! <laughs> for their podcast. Hint, hint. Keep an ear out. Hit that subscribe button. Yeah. <laughs> And it's really hard to keep all these straight because I'm like, which was, used, was this one used for snake bites? Yes, echinacea was used for snake bites. And it's really cool because they actually, archaeological evidence shows that it was, in of, of old Native American villages, finds like preserved echinacea. So it was definitely has these long-term standing usages. Hmm. And then once European settlers came over and started to invade, they also took up the practice of using echinacea, again, as a cure-all. And they brought it back to Europe. It became, became super popular, particularly in Germany, where it has kind yeah. of retained its popularity. And I wonder why. Like, specifically I there. I don't know. So, I, I don't know. There was a very prominent German physician in the 1800s called Dr. Meyer. And he was from Pawnee, Nebraska. What? What? Yeah. <laughs> he worked with Leslie. No. <laughs> but he had... It's only. Yeah. It's okay. He had such faith in the plant that he developed a thing called Meyer's Blood Purifier, and he huh. advertised it from town to town on his wagon, and in his wagon, he kept with him rattlesnakes, where so he, like, he would, would, have he would be like, someone? everyone, come, come, I'm going to sell you this amazing blood purifier. <laughs> he took out the... Didn't he? Well... <laughs> She made a gesture, I mean, pointed to her fangs. Like, I think she's removing fangs, yeah. yeah. Her tusks. Yeah, so he, he would take these these defanged <gasps> rattlesnakes Ew. in front of the crowd and be Marketing like, look, they bit me, they bit genius. me. And then he would rub some of his blood purifier and everyone would be like, oh, okay, you take all my money. Wow. Question. Yes. Is this where the term snake oil salesman comes from? No, but... Long so I, history using snakes to sell. <laughs> I looked the 
this up actually. No, snake oil apparently from the very quick Wikipedia that I did. <laughs> I trusted. <laughs> so I could be wrong. Uh, came from a little bit earlier in the 1800s when a ton of Chinese immigrants came over to work on the railroads or were brought over to work on the railroads and some of them brought with them snake oil which was from a water a Chinese water snake and they would hmm. use it to cure like you know muscle aches and wounds uh. and make them feel just better in general and it became so popular amongst both the Chinese immigrants living in the United States and amongst European settlers that people started to manufacture their own, which of course became super bogus, and mm-hmm. then that's where snake oil kind of took on, went from legit medical this thing, thing to you know BS. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Did not expect to learn that, but I'm so happy because I, I, I knew you would know. I, I have like, lobbied. I, I've said that before, and it just kind of I, I should probably look that up. Well, and, and he, so this guy was definitely a snake oil salesman. Right. I mean, it's funny you mentioned he believed in it so much, but he. If he did believe it, would he have removed said fang? I mean, I'm sure it's unpleasant, even if it does work, but... How did no one go, bro, your arm's not even bleeding? Yeah. Well, I I have no... Maybe he cut himself a little bit. Maybe. You know, I mean, he... Or he just wouldn't let the the people become close Yeah, no one's looking that close. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and and so that was one way it became really popular. Okay. So, Meyer's blood purifier. And then a group of doctors in the late 1800s also really helped to promote echinacea these were called the eclectics which are no longer a group relevant group um and they used it for like venereal disease migraines malaria menstrual cramps like all of the things all the things and uh yeah and so people would start to give it to their horses to their kids you know it was and and you mentioned that it's not currently super threatened but it definitely the populations of echinacea that were historically used by native americans were decimated sure. in the in this initial push. So then they would switch to a different plant, and then once that kind of dro- <laughs> dropped down, they switched to a different one. And it turns out that it it didn't matter biologically, or um, I guess physiologically for the humans, which plant they used, but it definitely mattered to the plant, which <laughs> many of which are now extinct. Yeah, apparently. yeah, okay. So I'd actually be interested to know if they've recorded which ones were driven to extinction that I way. I think you know I didn't write down a single species name. That's I all right. Just like echinacea species. Echinacea. We can, oh, we can revisit. How um, dare you? <laughs> How dare you? Uh, then let's see. So to take us into the 1900s, it was pretty still well respected up until the 1950s. I think actually it was on the. Let me see if I can find a name for this the National Formulary of the United States, which is an official publication that lists the description, the dosage, the instructions of effective drugs in the U.S. So we had one of those. Yeah, and so it was only removed from that list in like the, I think the, is it the 30s or the 50s? I don't remember. But, you know, people still continue to use it. Um, It it kind of gained a reputation as being a quack remedy, and (laughs) it was declared to be such by the American Medical Association in the early 1900s, who Hmm. titled this paper, quote, Echinacea considered valueless, and that its use was based on, quote, the absurd claims of an evidently ignorant man. (laughs) And that echinacea was, quote, deemed unworthy of further consideration. Huh. Oh, so harsh. That is harsh. Very AMA, harsh, particularly geez. considering like later on, you know, some of the research that maybe you'll talk about. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, as I mentioned, it, it lost favor in the U.S. because people have been using it to treat all sorts of diseases. Antibiotics came into play, mm. and they were like, mm. oh, there's something a lot <laughs> better. <laughs> Definitely worse. At this point. Uh, but it oh, became yeah. really popular in Germany and or remained really popular. So a lot of research was done there in the middle of the century, in the middle of the 19th, or 20th century, on echinacea. And it remained popular, and so in 1990... Over-the-counter sales of echinacea were equivalent to $2.4 billion in Europe. Billion with a B? Whoa. Mm -hmm. And 65% of that was in Germany. Hmm. So. When people talk, that's what gets me a little bit, is when people talk about big pharma money, what about big herbal money? money. (laughs) That's unregulated cash stocks. Yeah, that's true. Dang. So it was, and it, it kind of, I think, probably became really popular again during the AIDS crisis and people were, mm. were touting it as a, a treatment, an immune booster for people with Oof. HIV. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. The, this idea of immune boosting kind of is, I think, most relevant today. I know when people come into, uh, when I was working at that grocery store, they'd come in and ask, I have a cold, could I have some echinacea tea? And that was mainly because of this supposed immune yes. boosting. What up with that? What up with that? Is it really just hydration because you're drinking more tea? <laughs> you're drinking more tea? That's, I didn't find anything about As that, I but that would be very tea, interesting. Literally. So I think that this idea of immunostimulation or immunomodulation, I'm saying both of those with air right, quotes. Right, air quotes, important part there. It's really, really interesting. We know in medicine that... If you activate the adaptive immune system, that's like your antigen response, Mm. that's really effective in combating specific illnesses, right? If I give you the smallpox vaccine and then I give you smallpox after a period of time, (laughs) (laughs) your body has made antigens to that smallpox and that way you can fight it off and you don't actually develop smallpox. We know that. What we don't know very much about is what happens if... So the other half of your immune system is the innate immune system, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't really know that much about what happens if you stimulate that in terms of how good it is at fighting off infections. So if I boost the amount of macrophages, that's part of your innate immune system, in your body, does that have a big effect on decreasing your viral load or fighting off these, these bacteria? And it's not very well studied for a lot of different diseases. So what's really interesting is that there is some cool studies out there in petri dishes that show that if you add extract of echinacea, specifically extract of echinacea or different parts of echinacea, you can increase macrophage activity. So you start kicking up these little globules and you go around and eat bad guys. Yeah, but we have no idea what that means in the human body. Okay. Here's another thing I'm going to throw out there. Drum roll. <laughs> One of the biggest things it seems like that echinacea is often used for is something like the common cold, right? Mm-hmm. Common cold is caused by a virus called rhinovirus. So it's, first of all, it's viral. And a lot of the symptoms that you get with the common cold, like the runny nose and the sniffling and the coughing, a lot of those are not caused by the virus itself. That's actually your immune system's response oh, to fighting off the virus. Fun. Yeah. So collateral if you... <laughs> damage. <laughs> so the question is, 
If you give something like echinacea that maybe increases your immune response, does that just mean that your symptoms are actually worse hmm. because those immune responses oh. are what's actually causing your symptoms? Wow. Yeah, but we don't know. <laughs> right, right, okay. So it's easy to see where that would be like, okay, the, the issue comes from your immune system beating the crap out of your body in the right. process of fighting it. That's what makes Do you, you feel so bad. Do you want to boost it? Yeah, yeah, right. So it's like maybe huh. it helps you kick the virus faster, that's the idea, I think, behind it, that right. because you're boosting this immune system, you'll kick that virus quicker. But basically, what I have found is that there have not been enough studies to show that it actually has any effect, one way or the other. Okay. Um, there's been enough studies that it seems like if you have a cold and you take echinacea, it's probably not going to do any harm. But there haven't really been very many studies that show that it does very much to help with that cold specifically. Yeah. But it's really interesting, this idea that it could potentially be increasing your innate immune response. The problem is that we don't know what that means in terms of how your body actually fights off right. an infection. We've studied the adaptive immune response a lot more than the innate immune response. Probably some immunologist is going to be like, no, we know everything. But from what I can <laughs> from tell. From what you can tell. And and this is way more than what most people will tell you at the store or you know, right. in whatever meeting you're at on yeah. Friday because you're feeling ill and you want to go home. Right. Uh, that's interesting. It's very interesting. Now, the next question becomes is, did they, you said echinacea extract, like they just soaked, steeped the little leaves Great in the Great question. Yeah. Have they ever isolated or did they identify any compounds? That's a really good question. Not that I have found. Okay. There was a, at least one study or a few studies where they've done extracts specifically of like polysaccharides, which just means like long chain sugars. But when you ingest sugars, those are just broken down into glucose. Yeah. So that wouldn't really stimulate your immune stimulate system, your immune system it's because like it's going to be broken down. Yeah. Right, exactly. Ooh, it's, it's not, well, yeah. it's going to be broken down long before it could ever be active, essentially, right. if uh -huh. it is and a polysaccharide that point, that's active. It's no different than most of the other sugars you're eating. Yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, as far as I can tell, they don't actually know what, hmm. what it could be in echinacea that could be causing any... So, when I mentioned something about... People using it for HIV mm -hmm. treatment. Yeah. What did you find about that? Because there were some interesting, potentially bad side effects. Oh, yes. the way okay, HIV so, works. Right. So here's the problem. I, I Okay. What you're referring to <laughs> is this idea that if echinacea is increasing your immune response, it might be increasing the number of immune cells that you have active or oh. that are floating around your body. Okay. The way that HIV virus works is it invades your immune cells, specifically your T cells. So if you increase the number of T cells that are floating around your body, you're increasing basically like the surface area that HIV oh, no. can then invade and replicate into. So that could be huh. very dangerous. That's scary. Yeah. I, I don't know for sure if there's evidence in humans that taking echinacea actually does increase your T-cell count. I don't know if it actually does that or not. Right. But that is a, a fear or a, a something that could potentially happen. One of Did the you... caveats of like, hey, maybe yeah. don't take it. Well, it sounds like we can make hit a button here and make this whistle. And if we go over here, this does this funny thing. And down here, this is, but what do they all mean together? Right, right. That's a totally different story. Yes. And that's scary because, again, this is a case where, uh, you know, we've advanced in the treatment of HIV, as I understand it, to the point where you don't 
need to take, you should probably be taking the things that we know for sure yes. <laughs> are getting you, uh, you know, prolonging life and yes, well-being overall. Definitely. Uh, you know, and drink your tea maybe, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, and it might be part of that, like, and this is kind of one of the things that we talked about initially too, is in terms of, of herbalism, maybe, maybe part of the reason why it's so popular or in certain cases why it's so popular is that antiretroviral treatment for HIV is really expensive. It's very expensive. And so if you're trying to find a way where you're like, well, I simply cannot afford those those medications. What can I still do? That's one resource that people might seek to use, but that Mm -hmm. can also be detrimental according to what we kind of know about echinacea. One thing I will say about echinacea, and based on your history, I'm not surprised that this is the case, is it, it really seems like something that They've done a lot of studies in cell cultures and things like that, but there haven't really been a lot of clinical trials. And my guess is that's because the AMA decided we're not going to touch this. (laughs) That that harsh review. Yeah. 1909. Right. And that's, it's really interesting because, I mean, it's not like the AMA is always right about things. No, and that's That's where... That's for sure. Right. And and, and that's why I wonder (laughs) if if some of these these studies in, in Germany might act, have actually led to some interesting yes. mm-hmm. conclusions. That... And there's such a huge publication bias because a lot of... So one of the reviews that I found on Echinacea specifically included German language studies, mm-hmm. and a lot of meta-analyses that are published in English do a search for studies only that were written in English. Yeah. So there's a huge bias when you have research being done in countries that are not publishing in English because then those studies are totally uh, missed by reviews yeah. and meta-analyses here in the States. Right. So and in addition to the whole publication bias for if you found a positive result. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Versus, eh, mm-hmm. didn't yeah. really seem that interesting. So, yeah. mm-hmm. wow. So much food for thought there. Yeah. Or it's pretty interesting. Herbs for thought. Mm-hmm. I looked at it, obviously, from the botanical perspective, and they have at least isolated or at least found certain compounds within the plant that I don't know have any influence on what you had just mentioned there. Uh, One group that was super interesting that came up were alchemides, and that's not unique to echinacea. At least 33 other plant families are known to produce them, but they, they show this weird broad structural variability. So there's there's very different forms of them and they all seem to do some range of important biological activity not related to growth. But one of the more interesting things uh, about certain alchemides in plants is that some are immunomodulatory uh-huh, for the plant uh-huh. itself, okay. antimicrobial, antiviral, and then larvicidal and insecticidal. Not to mention there's like pungent compounds and stuff that just kind of chase things off. So a lot of this sounds like at least with this class of compounds in a plant system. Right. Still pretty different than a human system, of course, but they're serving functions that are defense or at least not immunological. I guess plants don't have immune systems like you and I do. That's another mm-hmm. big caveat to make here. It's mm-hmm. like you can't even speak about immune systems in plants this way, but uh, it seems like fighting off disease is at least one thing that they do. It's really interesting. I wonder... Oh, that's super interesting. That it, So it has those effects in the plant, where it's helping the plant to defend itself potentially against viruses yes. and funguses. Fun, fun, fungi. fungi. Disease-causing <laughs> agents, really. Funguses. So it's, I, it's very... That's very interesting. Yeah. And again, these could be completely unrelated right. to one another, and they still happen to have... Yeah, you know, yeah. an, an organism is going to have some sort of innate way of defending itself mm-hmm. uh, it, to some degree or another. It's just kind of cool that there there seems to be these these overlaps. And again, 
keep in mind that these are wild creatures. They're out there defending themselves. They're living, breathing, evolving, having sex, and dying. And uh, that involves, for a plant that can't get up and move away, a lot of chemicals. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know if I'm going to go use it for snake bites. <laughs> uh, I don't have any immune system issues, but... I think just staying hydrated and sleeping is good enough for the common cold. Uh, I drink tea, whatever. I take zinc. Yeah, okay. Yeah. There you go. That has been shown to have helpful effects. But for the most part, unless you have certain instances worth considering, uh, echinacea is fine. I mean, do your own research, listeners. That's true. And at any point, that's the other good point here is like, Tell us. If you have yeah, research right. and any yeah. interesting information, just at, at this point, just send it to us. I would that love would be to really cool. I think it's, more. it's safe to say that right now, we have done enough research to be dangerous. <laughs> oh, that's so true. I like that. Because we're like, well, this is what this showed. Blah, 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 blah. No, and I think Bern Heinrich said it really well. Uh, sometimes a little bit of knowledge is worse than none at all. In, yeah. in some instances. That hundred. <laughs> yes. If you start... Drunkenly diagnosing me and trying to get me to get on these supplements. Have to have words. Okay, the next one, uh, super exciting, especially this Aaron to my right here that's I'm moving. She's California bouncing. Aaron is California Aaron is super excited about. I'm sure you found something. I found some stuff. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> Only one of us can be excited at a time. That's a rule we have on our podcast. Yeah, it's funny. Oh. There have been episodes where you'll be like. This one's really boring. Yeah. <laughs> the really fun. Yep. I think the important thing is you can be honest with each other about that. Yes. All right, after that suspense, uh, the next one we're going to talk about is St. John's Wort. Oh, yeah. A beautiful plant called Hypericum perforatum. It's got five petaled yellow flowers, tons of anthers, which are the pollen-producing organs. Ooh. To the best of my knowledge, no St. John's Worts produce nectar, or at least oh, not wow. in any measurable amount. They're pollen plants, so they rely on bees just swarming them to collect as much pollen as possible, and it's super fun to watch, because there's just, it's like a pom-pom of these dusters just going all over the bee, and the bees are like, yes! And and they they range in size, they're small ones, most of the family, oddly enough, is yellow-flowered, but there's a handful of pink varieties that are kind of fun to, to find. This particular species, the one that occurs, at least the one that I found occurs in most of the medicinal talk, uh, is native to Europe. Although, because of its economic importance as an herbal supplement, it is grown widely outside of its range. It's cultivated for this purpose, and it is now considered a noxious weed in more than 20 countries. <laughs> and has Judgment. Yeah. yeah introduced <laughs> populations in South and North America, India, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa, where it is pretty nasty. So when it gets out and starts invading areas, uh, it is both toxic and invasive Whoa. so it replaces native plant communities which replaces a lot of the food that organisms would eat and it can be pretty deadly to different ungulates uh, this is especially an issue if you have livestock sheep huh. uh, horses yeah. it causes photosensitization so by eating it your skin actually becomes very sensitive to uv rays which mm-hmm. the way you shook your head i'm very excited about that <laughs> uh, a central nervous system depressant and that's interesting. So it kind of dulls and makes anything eating it more vulnerable to predators. Ah. And it also causes spontaneous abortions ah. or death. Which, oh my god. What better way to get rid of herbivores by ensuring the next generation of herbivores doesn't happen? That is so that's interesting. crazy. Yeah. So here's a plant with a lot of potential, very good at defending itself. <laughs> 
and so good at it that when you introduce it to other countries, it becomes a noxious invasive species as wow. a result. Uh, that's one of the big hypotheses in invasive species is get rid of the enemies mm-hmm. of the plant. And the novel, the, the new ecosystem it's introduced in can't handle what it's what it's bringing to the table. So, all right, let's talk about St. John's wort. I have a question for you. Me? Yes. Okay. Are there species in the genus that are native to North America? Yes. Or there are lots okay. of them. Yeah, lots I can't them. name all of them. Okay. Um, well, I'm, but there are I'm a lot. Shocked and yeah. disappointed. That you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> there was probably one day over the summer where I knew like three of them because oh, I saw them I'm on impressed. a hike and then uh, it, it, I'm it leaves. It leaves. She's disappointed, but I'm impressed. <laughs> I'll take it. A 50-50 chance. Kiss ass. <laughs> uh, okay. So yeah. St. John's I'll show you Ward. some this summer. Yeah. I promise. Okay, good. Okay. Can I, and then we'll learn whether or not I should just like eat them or rub them on my face or something. I'm just going to make you do both. Okay, cool. Cool, <laughs> cool, cool. cool. Yes, St. John's wort. So, the etymology, which I didn't do for Echinacea, and I don't know if I ever read it anywhere. Probably did, but I'll do it for St. John's wort. So, Hypericum, is that right? Mm -hmm. Hypericum comes from the Greek words hyper, meaning above, and icon, meaning picture or apparition. So, and this is in reference to St. John's wort is supposed to be magical, and it's supposed Mm -hmm. to ward off evil. And so, what what it was commonly done was to hang these plants over pictures, oh, uh, particularly whoa. religious icons, and that kind of is how it evolved later on, uh, when once Christianity kind of took over. Huh. And, so this is an uh, ancient practice. It's super ancient. Awesome. So St. John's wort goes back a really, really long time, and it was it was used in ancient China for medicinal purposes, but in ancient Greece and Rome, it was used not just for medicinal purposes, but also for this mag- these magical properties that it was supposed to have. Of course. Primarily warding off evil. Uh, later on in, in medieval times... <laughs> no, right? Keep going. Doesn't oh, garlic do that today? That's... Mostly vampires, yeah. I think, yeah. Well, I mean, they're the That's ultimate true. evil, so... Yeah. <laughs> Are they the ultimate evil? <laughs> An argument could be made. <laughs> Many. We could, I think there's probably a whole podcast there, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. Proceed. Um, so, uh, oh, so yeah, in other magical practices, it was believed that if someone put a piece of St. John's wort under their pillow on St. John's Eve, which St. John's Eve, St. John the Baptist, there's a whole day, I'll get to it. Wouldn't it be creepy if tonight was St. John's Eve? <laughs> Spoiler alert, oh. it is. No, really? No, okay. <laughs> I was, I was going to walk out <laughs> into the rain. <laughs> if you put the St. John's wart under your pillow, St. John himself would appear in your dreams to bless you and prevent you from dying in the year to come. Whoa. That's heavy. That's pretty mage. I wish you left it at just bless you like you're dreaming and you go, choo, and he just comes and he goes, bless you. I don't think I've ever uh, sneezed in your dream. Sleep sneezed. That's another thing. Listeners, write in. Have yeah. you sneezed you in sneezed your sleep? Have you sneezed yourself awake? Is a sneeze involuntary? I don't think it is. So I don't think you could sneeze you in your sleep. You don't think it's involuntary? I don't think so. Um, let's see. Okay. It was primarily used in ancient times and medieval times in oil or snap form, which I learned is like a shot taken during a meal. Oh. Uh, ancient Greeks recommended it for sciatica, burns, malaria, etc. 
a venomous snakes. I mean, like, this is another Dude. one of those cases where it was anything and everything. Hey, St. John's Ward. People were getting bit by snakes a lot. You know, I really wonder what yeah. the ancient snake population was like. And I just wonder if a lot of times they're like, uh-oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. slapped that on it, and some people recovered, and those that did told the story of the plants, and the other ones that died, those I weren't, mean, yeah, okay. And then they hunted the plants to extinction. And the snakes, too, probably. Uh, yeah. Uh, people used it for divination purposes, to find out who they were going to marry, mm. and but most notably, how long am I going to live? Which a mm. lot of people seem to be concerned with, which is probably what is the um, life expectancy, 40 years or so. Yeah. You are, Aaron, California Aaron is over there very excited about something. I have an she's, answer she's to She's like writhing. Okay. <laughs> bringing it back. Let's bring it back. Settle this. You cannot sneeze during sleep due to REM atonia. <gasps> oh, where your sleep paralysis? Right. However, Sweet. sufficient external stimulants may cause you to wake up and then sneeze. Yup. Interesting. I bet I got up, looked at the light. Sneeze. Done. Why is it called St. John's Wart, though? Why yeah. is the common name that? Well, I don't know, really. <laughs> well, I do know. I think I found it somewhere. Well, you know. I know wart is just plant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's St. John's plant. But usually isn't like wart to... Oh, no, I guess that's like wormwood is like to use against worms. Oh, yeah. Wart was but like wart liver just, wart. Yeah, it's for... St. John's wart. It just, it's okay. like a generic plant. So liver plant. wart is your liver plant? Liver warts are plants that look... Like the doctrine of signatures where there was this idea that God wouldn't put anything here without a purpose. So anything that remotely resembled an organ was thought to cure uh, ailments of that organ. So liverworts, like hepatica, all of those got liver names because they look, they like, look like your liver, I guess. Weird. And yeah, and so like, well, why else would that thing be shaped that way if I wasn't supposed to nibble on it? And have it cure that thing. That, that thing. Cool. Maybe this is why. So not legend cool. People has still it. hold on to that. So <laughs> not really the way I would practice my self healing. But... No, just because of grapes. What are those used to? <laughs> I mean, rub them on there. <laughs> I didn't vibe. <laughs> okay. Legend has it. So this this might answer actually the question. Uh, legend has it that. Red spots appear on the leaves of this plant on the anniversary of John the Baptist's beheading. Uh, so the spots are symbolic of his blood. Mm. So it's it actually. I guess I guess the church decided to name it after Saint John the Baptist, probably as an honorary whatever. So traditional flowering and harvesting happens on Saint John's Day, which I alluded to earlier, and that's June twenty fourth. Hmm. So. Uh, yeah, people would carry it in their pocket to honor St. John, the Baptist, and stuff like that. But as I, as I, so I, I asked you earlier, Matt, about North American Hypericum species, and Native Americans apparently used these native species to treat things like diarrhea, snake bites. <laughs> Again, I mean, snake bites are going to come up all the Humans. time in this. Fevers. Leave the snakes uh, alone. <laughs> but it wasn't nearly as popular as it was, as like echinacea was. Mm. Um, I don't really know why. I'm wondering because now I'm trying to think of the size distribution. The uh, this this Hypericum porphyratum is a large plant. It's it's mm. it's it stands out, and a lot of ours are smaller, or at least don't attain the biomass. Oh. And I'm wondering if either they were in too specialized a habitat, though that mm. wouldn't matter if you knew the land really well, mm -hmm. uh, or just didn't really register on the radar as much as being or produce enough to be thought of as useful. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh. I mean, not to say that they don't. I've, I've definitely seen stands of them, so... Yeah, and I wonder whether their, like, Native North American species are more or, like, less bioactive or have hmm. fewer yeah. components or what, how the ecology differs between the two and it, how, if that could... It's always a possibility. You know? I mean, there's yeah. there's certainly kind of merits to these distinct evolutionary lines. Those continents have been separate, or at least the land bridges haven't been there yeah, for right. quite some time. It's plenty of time. We had different flora and fauna. I mean, the East Asia... Uh, North America connection is really big. We share a lot of genera, but Asia always has, for most genera, like three times the amount of representatives that we do. And there's a lot of speculation, really interesting stuff there. But yeah, there there certainly could be, although I didn't find anything to suggest that. Probably, again, one of those cases where no one's really looked. Yeah. 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 So it was used for a bunch of things, both <laughs> in ancient Greece I had, do you want to, you want to hear just a, a list because I yes. this, this these are I love up. these lists. Okay. Anxiety, bedwetting, dyspepsia, excitability, exhaustion. So it's going to work both ways. <laughs> we need to level you somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Fibrocystis, gastritis, gout, hemorrhage, pulmonary complaints, rheumatism, sciatica, and swelling. I love the sciatica swelling. one. It's like my, my nerve is pinched. Do some yoga. Okay, and that brings up a really good point. Any herb you look at, if it's been used traditionally for any amount of time, you get a list. A very long list. A very long list. And it's not like it's a list of all things related to the heart or all things related to the circulatory system. It's a list of what I would consider very unrelated Mm -hmm. ailments and bodily functions. Is there cause for, uh, you know, skepticism there at least if you see something being like a cure-all? Yes, I mean, definitely, if you see something that says, like, it will cure anxiety and also gonorrhea, like, that's problematic. But well, maybe you have anxiety from having if gonorrhea? If it cures okay. your gonorrhea, okay. then, yes, you're side right. effects, Sorry. Right. Yeah. correction. Touché. Biologically yeah. speaking. Biologically <laughs> speaking. Yeah, that's a really good point, though. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, if you see things that are very disparate like that, I would say the one caveat to that is if if you have problems with certain hormonal imbalances, those are obviously things that affect a large variety of systems, right? Mm-hmm. Everything from, like, your heart to your ev- everything, right? Um, but in general, yeah, that is something that I, I am skeptical of personally. Right. Although I'm skeptical of everything. Yeah, as, as so. you should question <laughs> everything. Did you have more on the history? Or at least bringing us into modern times, then, is <clears throat> yeah. other Aaron here? You were really excited about I'm this plan. thrilled. All right. So let's just jump right in. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't know if you want to tell me what is active in it first. Because okay. yeah. um, I forgot to look up the name of it, although I know it was written. So I found two compounds, biologically speaking, about the plant that, that that's unique to these plants called hypericin and yes. hyperforin. Mm-hmm. And both of these are produced in oil glands that are present in uh, the pistils, the fruits, and probably much of the rest of the plant, which Hmm. was interesting going back to what you said about the spots. A big diagnostic characteristic for a lot of them are spots under the petals, under the leaves. They're black from what I can remember, and I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure they're the oil glands, so it's... It's essentially the plant pumping these compounds into these storage organs that when the tissue then becomes damaged through chewing, usually, or, or ingestion, uh, they're, they're released to act as they will. Because plants are all about compartments. Mm-hmm. And again, these compounds, as we heard in the noxious weed part of it, 
are, they're probably a defense against herbivory. Uh, it's, it's again, kind of hard to prove that, although in the case when you have like livestock and other ungulates dying, it's, it's, it's a pretty clear case there. But what I thought most interest, interesting about it is how it works, and what it does is it inhibits the reuptake of a neurotransmitter from the synapse into the presynaptic neuron, uh, which leads to an increase of extracellular concentrations of neurotransmitters. And that's kind of how we kill Tuts. bugs with RAID. Yep. You spray them, it opens up their nerve channels to this just flood, and yeah. they just listen to our poison podcast. We'll talk about that in more <laughs> detail. Uh, but yeah, that's a really good way to kill things that are eating you. Mm -hmm. But again, poison, dose. Right. Oh, this was a very exciting one for me. Why? Because, like you said... It has compounds that do things that were easier to find information about awesome. than echinacea. Yeah. So this was you finally stumbling across something exactly. going, yes, literature! Yeah. So, although I also saw the stuff where there's a very long list of things that St. John's Wort is often or has been used for, mostly today it is used for treating depression. Okay. So that is the most common thing that it is used for. There is pretty good evidence, especially if you go outside the English literature, because again, for some reason, this is super common in Germany. Germany yeah. just loves their herbal remedies, I guess. Or they'll, they're more likely to consider it. Yeah, maybe. Um, but it's it's been used there, like, commonly forever. Doctors prescribe it and stuff uh, in Germany. Interesting. There's pretty solid evidence, from what I could find, that it is better than a placebo in treating mild to moderate depression. Hmm. Although the evidence from what I could find, again, seems to be lacking on whether it can be used uh, successfully to treat severe depression, but in mild to moderate depression, and I don't remember exactly how they classify those things, I'm not a psychiatrist, it seems to be effective in mild to moderate depression. So that's, first of all, super cool because yeah. the things that we have to treat depression, they work, but they're not great, right? And it takes a lot of finicking with different types of levels and do you mm -hmm. need an SSRI or an MAOI and all these different types of things. So the idea that there is something out there that the side effects, if this is the only drug you're on, are are very, very minimal, hmm. um, almost non-existent. You can get some nausea, but like what medicine doesn't give you nausea? There is... From what I can tell, if you are prone to manic episodes or if you have bipolar disorder, this is uh, uh. can trigger manic episodes, so it oh, would not okay. be good to use okay. for that. Um, but in the case of non-complicated, I guess, like mild to moderate depression, it seems to be effective. And what's very cool is that it seems to work in a similar way that SSRIs, which is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors work. Which means, like you said, it inhibits the reuptake of neurotransmitters. Uh, serotonin, wow. dopamine, and norepinephrine. I love it. Wow. So it is literally in your brain going, let's not recycle this, just keep it out for a little while longer. And hmm. it's doing that to serotonin and dopamine, which can make you less depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat. <laughs> Terrible. Smoke and mirrors. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but that's that's the same way that SSRIs work. They inhibit your brain recycling hmm. serotonin and oh, getting rid of it and breaking it down. It's very cool. I will say, and I said this already, but there have not been a ton of good studies comparing St. John's wort to SSRIs or other MAOIs, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. 
It's another type of antidepressant. There haven't been a lot of studies comparing St. John's wort to other okay. antidepressants currently on the market that I have found. Okay. There have been a few, but from what I could tell, they were using like really, really low level dosage that maybe isn't what would actually be used in clinical practice of yeah. the other antidepressants. So there definitely still needs to be work done. But the good thing is it seems like people are actually doing that work. Like this is, there's enough evidence so far supporting that this seems to have an effect mm -hmm. that people are now doing more research on this. And I think the FDA is looking into actually regulating this more strictly because currently we have the same problem where because this is just considered an herbal supplement, if you buy it over the counter at your local pharmacy, you don't necessarily know how much yeah. you're getting or what what's an effective dose. Right. Now, this is what gets very interesting. Ooh, and that wasn't really, even the best part. That wasn't even the best part. It. A really, really important part about St. John's wort is that everything you read about it says, if this is the only drug you're taking, it's a good option. It is a terrible option if you're taking other drugs. Oh. And the reason is that St. John's wort interacts very strongly with cytochrome P450s, does this, this doesn't get you excited? I'm not registering. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. <laughs> so cytochrome P450s are a group of enzymes that, they're monooxygenases that literally metabolize drugs and other compounds. Oh, so they're super common boy. in herbivorous insects because they help insects metabolize ah, plant byproducts. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So when, when you get specialist insects that are adapting to these compounds, yes. it's via that pathway? Exactly. A lot of times. Boom. Yeah. Ye Yes! Exactly! <laughs> ah, I love your endo background. Back, in, back to plants and bugs. Um, so we have cytochrome P450s also, and two of them specifically are affected by St. John's wort. One of them seems to be inhibited by St. John's wort. So if you take St. John's wort, it decreases the expression of these enzymes, uh, and that's CYP1A2, which metabolizes coffee, the carcinogens in your cigarettes, mm. acetaminophen, a few other things. So it basically reduces the expression of that so you're not digesting caffeine as well, not metabolizing caffeine as well if you're taking St. John's wort. Does that make it more intense for you? I or think, just yeah, it would make it your... last It would make it last longer. Right, because right? you're not clearing, you're not it, clearing uh, it. Ooh, okay. Dang, okay, good but, to know. <laughs> but, <laughs> I was like on the St. John's wort train. Well, like, no. I'm going to stop at Schnucks. <laughs> well, it, it, it also, <laughs> even, and I think what's even more strongly, because I'm not 100% sure if that, if it inhibits or enhances that cytochrome. So we should do some extra research on that. But okay. the other one, which I think is the more important one, is CYP34A, which is a liver cytochrome. Mm. That cytochrome enzyme is in charge of deactivating basically all the drugs that you would take. So, so <laughs> many different drugs. Really importantly, things like warfarin, which is a blood thinner. Mm -hmm. So if you are on a blood thinner, because you are prone, you're prone to blood clots, and then you take St. John's wort, it basically can deactivate Ooh. and drastically decrease the level of warfarin in your blood, which means it's not working the way you think it's supposed Ooh, to. Danger. It Bad. does the same thing if you're on oral contraceptives. So if Bad. you are taking oral contraceptives, this decreases the amount of oral contraceptive in your blood, which means it's not effective, which means you have an increased risk of becoming pregnant, and a whole bunch of other drugs too. So it's the interaction between St. John's wort and other medications is super, super important. So when you go to the doctor and you're taking St. John's yes. wort, tell your doctor it's not just a supplement, it's right. a drug that you are taking. And yeah. that, I mean, doctors, sh if you're a doctor and you're listening, you should be asking patients, 
hopefully they all know this already, <laughs> but because a lot of times like we're, we're told, oh, ask about medications, but you also have to ask, are you taking any supplements? Because so many people think, oh, I'm just taking this. It's not a medication. I buy it over the yeah, counter. Yeah, it's natural. It's not going to hurt yeah. me. Yeah. And right. so, yeah, wow. if you, it's really, you should tell your doctor everything you take, even if you think it doesn't matter at all, yeah. but especially if it's St. John's huh. Court, because it's super important. And Cyber for 50s are just so cool because we're learning so much more about how different people have different levels of expression. And so that changes the way that you metabolize drugs to begin with. And so this is just a really Ooh. interesting area. So this went down a medicine. really yes. fun oh. rabbit hole there. With, I know. Wow. And, and in my plant-centric mind, it's kind of like <laughs> St. John's was like, I'll, I'll get you eventually. <laughs> One way or another, <laughs> this is what you get for eating me. Yeah. No side effects? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I feel the same way I was reading this and I was like I need to go buy some St. John's work because like she's a little depressed grad school got me feeling go. down yeah <laughs> February got me feeling down February's seriously yeah February month. in grad school in Illinois Whoa. Yeah. wow that's that's awesome I can see I why you were like fidgeting with excitement <laughs> about this topic wow yeah it's a really really interesting yeah what would you, I guess plant. It's a really interesting plant. Yeah, yeah. And, and you got to think about, what you call it? we got a word for these things. Yeah. And it just, I love that it kind of all harkens back to the, this poison versus uh -huh. dose. Yeah. And organisms protecting themselves. And that teaches you about how organisms circumvent that and yeah. then how other organisms use it. I mean, obviously our obsession with it has benefited this species, mm -hmm. just like any plant or animal we bring into our lives benefits from us and in the evolutionary arms race of getting your genes into the next generation i mean who's controlling who yeah in this yeah. situation Whew. fascinating yeah well i've learned a lot me too yeah yeah this was fun i think uh we're gonna save lavender for another day but a really good part to mention that uh if people enjoy this this is Something that uh, we could do from time to time. No pressure. We're not going to set any schedule or anything. <laughs> not going to do that to ourselves. But no, let us know if you enjoyed this. Um, but at this point, I'd, I'd like you both to just promote yourselves some more. How do we do that? We're not good at that yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So what is your podcast called again? Oh, this podcast will kill you. You have one season out? Yes. How many episodes is it? Out. 12 episodes plus a bonus. So 12 plus a bonus that you can binge right now. Uh-huh, you should. Available on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get your Stitcher. podcasts. Yeah. We're almost on Spotify. We're working on it. The other part is uh, you've got a new season coming up, so people have something to look forward to. Yes. It's not like this is a right. one we and done. Also, um, so we did this crossover. We did, But yeah. we also did a second crossover, which we've referred to a couple times. That will be on our podcast. Yes. Yeah. About... Dun, 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 dun. Poison. Poisons. <laughs> and so the cool thing about that is that these will be released, if we can help it, roughly around the same time yeah, yeah. as each other. Like a so, Sunday and a Tuesday. Yeah, you yeah. can instantly go and find the other one when yeah. you're listening to this. Cool. And you're on Twitter. We're on Twitter at TPWKY. We're on, on Facebook, Facebook at This Podcast Will Kill You. And also Instagram. This podcast will kill you. And you've you've done some guest episodes on other podcasts now, uh, too. Yeah. We were on a Superwoman in Science episode. Awesome. I can't wait to listen to that one. It was very cute. They they do a really nice job we talk about podcast. We talk about ourselves. Your actual research? Yeah. yeah. It's Ooh. very short. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, still, I'm going to listen. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and we've also got a couple mini episodes that we're planning before season two, um, but we don't have a release date yet. Cool. Well, 
I guess the big picture here is that you guys have a lot coming out, a lot to look forward to. Yeah, heck yeah. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for doing this. I'm this was sorry. fantastic. Super fun. I'm sorry yeah. for the giant list, but we worked on it. <laughs> no, it was no, great. I learned a lot. This is amazing. I, I hope we can kind of keep doing this from time to time. So yeah. thank you both for taking time out of... I had a lot of fun. What are very yeah. busy. This is one of the most fun. I don't usually get to kind of unleash... <laughs> My, me on the guests yeah yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's 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 a very usually you know it's good to have friends in here and, yeah. and just yeah. uh, be able to sit back with people i hang out with all the time and, and do this so thank you thank, thank you. you all right everyone goodbye bye <laughs> all right everyone that was so much fun to sit down and record and to be honest it was a lot of fun researching it as well i learned a lot i think the errands learned a lot so thanks for sitting down. Again, if you have actual scientific information on the efficacy of any of these herbs, please send it our way. We'd love to learn more about it. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed this. Go check out the Aaron's podcast. This podcast will kill you. It is an awesome disease ecology, disease history podcast. They are well-researched, well-informed. And again, I'm going to be on their podcast. So by Tuesday of this week, hopefully, you should be able to head on over to this podcast, We'll Kill You, and check out the topic that we discussed. No spoilers. I'm going to let them be the ones to inform you. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. Please stay tuned. There's a lot of amazing things coming up in the works. Uh, I want to tell you so bad, but I don't want to ruin any surprises. Uh, the best way to do that, though, is to hit that subscribe button. Thanks for listening, everyone. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios.